Good evening. This is Justin Ford in the studio for Africa Christian Action Salt and Light on Radio Tigerberg. Tonight we are discussing the coronation and the kingdom of God. On Saturday the 6th of May 2023, Westminster Abbey in London will be the scene of a magnificent coronation ceremony, the coronation of King Charles III and Camilla. Dr. Hammond, do you have any comments on these momentous events that are coming? Yes, I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating and magnificent. Um, we have not seen a coronation on this scale since 1953, which is, of course, before we were born, when Queen Elizabeth II was crowned. And uh, what is making this one a bit disturbing is the amount of controversy surrounding it, not just about the wayward uh, antics of the Duke and Duchess of Woke or of Netflix or of Sussex or something like this, uh, but uh, also the... Um, uh, interfaith attempts of King Charles III to try and inject some Muslim, Hindu, Jewish uh, leaders into what is meant to be a Christian worship service. And Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Justin Welby, has quite rightly insisted that it is a Christian service, not a religious service. And under the canons of the Church of England, both he and Westminster Abbey are required to ensure that only duly constituted Christian ministers of the gospel uh, may officiate. And in fact, no non-Christian is allowed to take part in these services by canon law. These are expressly Christian worship services. This is a communion service. And the king is to be anointed as a servant of God, as a deacon of God, as a minister of justice. His, uh, his oath of office, everything is in the Christian context. So uh, it would be like... A, expecting some imam or mahullah's um, service in a mosque in Tehran to be uh, including some Christians to be part of it. It's highly unlikely any other religion would tolerate that. So um, King Charles seems to be trying to be a bit of a king of woke. And as you know, it's go woke, go broke. Disney's discovering that. Disney's just laying off 7,000 staff members right now. So woke policies do seem to be disastrous, and Britain does not need a woke king. They need a king who's born again and who's seeking to honour God. As his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, certainly tried to be a faithful servant queen. And there's a book out, The Servant Queen and the King She Serves. In all of her speeches, the queen was very consistently Christian and pointing people to Christ. Even uh, Billy Graham, the evangelist, when he is in England, he met with the Queen and he later wrote that she was obviously born again. She obviously understood the gospel well and she loved the Lord and had a real relationship with Christ. That was the opinion of uh, Billy Graham and other people who've known the Queen personally had that observation. Well, sadly, I don't think we can say that about King Charles. King Charles III does seem to be more New Age orientated and he seems more enamored with other religions to the extent that he was suggesting that his title include defender of faiths instead of defender of the faith but he cannot constitutionally change his titles nor can he change his coronation oath that's not his to choose this is part of long tradition and it's actually got biblical roots dr hammond can you enlighten us as to the origin of britain's royal protocol and traditions yes so people will be interested to notice that every part of the coronation service is rooted in the bible and you can see many of the elements just a cursory look through the bible in 1 samuel 11 verse 15 so all the people went to gilgal there the maid saul king 
before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifice of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the people of Israel rejoiced greatly. That's under, of course, Samuel, who anointed the first king of Israel. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 3, All the elders of Israel came before the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king of Israel. So these policies, these traditions, they rooted in how... Uh, and these were done, that's where you get all the barons and all the lords of England. They'll all gather in their robes and with their crowns. Um, and there's a covenant. The king must make certain pledges first before God and then before his citizens and to his barons and lords, what he promised to do in protecting and serving them. And then they make oaths of allegiance to him. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 20, we read, Now it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king of all Israel. Uh, we turn to 2 Kings, chapter 11, and verse 12. And they brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they made him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. So, I mean, even that statement of long live the king, and uh, which is even in Britain's national anthem, it comes from these passages of scripture. 2 Chronicles 23 and verse 11. And they brought out the king's son and put the crown on him, gave him the testimony, made him king. Then Jeroboam and all his sons anointed him and said, Long live the king. Now, the high priest and the priests were involved in the anointing of a king. And so it's always been the job of the Archbishop of Canterbury and the priests and bishops of England to have a key part of this. And it is a religious service. It's a Christian service. It is... The church as a minister of grace or recognizing the king as a minister of justice. They're both under God. They're both deacons. One is a minister or deacon of justice, the other deacon of grace. They're separate, but they're both answerable to God and they both should be mutually supportive. But these ideas of anointing with oil, it's biblical. I believe the British royal family is the only uh, royal house in Europe that actually uses anointing with oil as part of their service because it's seen that he's not becoming a political leader only he's a servant of God, the anointed of God, anointed for the spiritual task of leading the nation, even though it's politically. Um, there's other in intriguing aspects of this uh, service. They have the throne of King Edward, who started the first parliaments of England, by the way. King Edward I, who was a um, Norman, but he was also a crusader. He did a lot of crusades to the Holy Land. The crown of Edward the Confessor is the coronation crown and the throne of King Edward. It's a wooden throne made out of oak and uh, it's got four lines, a line on each foot of the of the chair of the throne and uh, there's a, cr a cross on the top of the pinnacle of the throne back, uh, seat back. Uh, there's, um, it's made of oak and uh, it used to be gilded but that's over the last 700 years faded and they're not likely to regild it. It's still, it looks like a very old throne, but it's part of the tradition. But what's unique about this throne of King Edward is it's got a place immediately under the seat for a stone to be uh, positioned just under the seat. And it's just not just any stone, it's a stone of scone. It's, it's Jacob's pillar. It's a stone of destiny from Scotland. And while the uh, Scottish people have negotiated for the return of their stone and it's it's preserved and protected in the Edinburgh Castle, 
it's for the express purpose that every time there's a coronation in London, the stone will be made available to be under the throne in Westminster Abbey. And the symbolism here is that the people of Great Britain are the children of Israel. They're the ten lost tribes of Israel. This Jacob's pillar was carried through the wilderness, and uh, it's got two metal rings in it so the pole could go through so the priest could carry it on a pole. And uh, it's uh, an old weathered stone, but it's believed to be the stone of destiny. Jacob rested his head on this very pillar. It's Jacob's pillar in the in the wilderness. And just reminding the people of Israel of their destiny, that they are uh, amongst the descendants of Abraham, who will be like the stars of the sky, like the stand of the seashore, who will be a great company of nations, who will be a blessing to all the families of the nations of the earth, and will be a company of nations who will possess the gates of the enemy. So a lot of the promises and prophecies made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are seen to be fulfilled in this. In fact, um, the Saxons are understood to be Jacob's sons. Jacob's sons, Saxons, over the years developed into that. And so the, the Saxons are perceived to be amongst the ten lost tribes of Israel. Dr. Hammond, um, talking about the ten lost tribes, does that mean that uh, Prince Charles, um, leaning towards an interfaith um, perspective, would bode ill for Britain, given what happened to the ancient Israelite kings? Who, um, Indeed. God never gave anybody a blank check, at least of all his own people. Every one of the, uh, of the prophets in the Old Testament condemned the people of Judah and Israel for interfaith apostasy, for ingratitude, for immorality, and for idolatry in particular. In fact, for idolatry, God abandoned Jerusalem twice, and Jerusalem was destroyed twice. How much clearer could God make it that he doesn't give anyone a blank check? And when his people turned away from God, God withdrew his, his protection. And uh, those people who said, his blood be upon us and upon our children, it didn't bode well for them. So, uh, AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed, and the temple. So to whom much is given, much is required. To whom much more is given, much more is required. So uh, if the British people are truly children of God, then they, which constitutionally and officially they claim to be, uh, then they have a greater responsibility and obligation. They have great traditions and great heritage. Uh, and as we will see, tremendous uniforms and ceremony and pageantry. But that must go along with obedience to God. And insofar as they have failed to do that, they can expect God's judgments and consequences. So it's, it's a serious thing to be unfaithful to God. And so King Charles, in trying to incorporate people from other religions in what is meant to be a Christian worship service in Westminster Abbey, uh, is definitely skating on thin ice and is um, inviting discipline and perhaps judgment from God. He should listen to his ministers and keep it an expressly Christian service. That remains to be seen. The, in the last coronation service in Westminster Abbey, 1953, the order of service was available four months before. Here we are less than two weeks away, and we still don't have the order of service available. And uh, there's apparently a lot of negotiating and arguing going on between the palace and uh, and the palace of Canterbury, or where the Archbishop of Canterbury's official residence is. Um, do you think Charles should have been passed, passed over? Uh, I do think so, because consider that, according to Magna Carta, the first requirements in Magna Carta, the Great Charter, which every head of state in Britain has to swear to uphold, uh, the first is that the rights and duties of the Church of England shall not be infringed. 
And uh, this is such an important principle, 1689 English Bill of Rights made it clear that nobody could be um, on the throne of England who was divorced or who was married to a divorcee or who was not a Protestant or was married or engaged to someone who was not a Protestant. And here we do not know Charles or Camilla as being expressly devout Protestants um, and uh, they are both divorced. Bearing in mind that back in the 1930s, Edward VIII, who was already king of England, although he hadn't yet come to a coronation ceremony, but Edward VIII was forced to abdicate because he was engaged to an American divorcee. We're not sure which was worse, being American or being a divorcee, but they were both apparently bad enough to exclude him from the throne. And Edward VIII was somebody who was very sympathetic to the working class man, uh, very much a friend of the miners and the common people, and uh, an admirer of what was happening in Germany in lifting up the common people and uh, basically empowering local people, moving away from banks that charge interest that uh, were keeping the people in debt slavery. It is believed by many who knew him that Edward VIII would never have approved of England declaring war on Germany and uh, that if he had remained king, consequences could have been uh, enormous for the good in terms of missing and avoiding the ruinous Second World War, so which bankrupted England, amongst other things, and broke up the empire. But uh, Edward VIII was forced to abdicate because he was wanting to marry an American divorcee. And so just consider how, I mean, this, of course, affects the Duke and Duchess of Woke and uh, the Duke and Duchess of Netflix um, more, but still, uh, Charles III could have easily been bypassed and the throne could have gone straight to Queen Elizabeth's grandson, Prince William, and uh, Duke and Duchess of Wales, in other words, um, um, Queen Catherine. Therefore, um, this has happened in English history before where they've bypassed a son of the king and gone straight to the grandson. And that could have happened, but um, for whatever reason, uh, they decided to stay with um, Charles instead of going straight to William. And uh, I think this could be a problem because King Charles is known to be a new age person who is a friend of Klaus Schwab, enamored with the climate cult and the whole um, work movement, which would not bode well for England. One can only hope and pray that the solemnness of the service and the pledges and oaths he must make will work in his heart and that in this Christian tradition and service, um, God will work in his heart and we know the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. We certainly hope and pray that King Charles will come to a real vibrant relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. So may this national anthem of England be the prayer of everyone's heart. God save the king. Um, I'm not sure if Charles is merely reflecting the zeitgeist of he, like other celebrities, is being used to shape the zeitgeist, but don't you think that he he does um, epitomize the the spirit of the age in which people flaunt the rules rather than adhering to the law? He does, and that's, that's so true. Now, Queen Elizabeth represents another age. She was duty-orientated, and to her, it was God and country and duty and honor and all of that. And her speeches at Easter and Christmas were particularly very Christ-centered, very Bible-based, and and epitomized the whole gospel of Christ over the years, as the book, The Servant Queen, The King She Serves, documents so well. Um, whereas Charles represents the spirit of the age of now, more secular, interfaith, more woke and uh, uh, fashionable. And so at the moment, I believe England is overwhelmingly 
secular, and a majority of the people in the British Islands now identify themselves as other than Christian. So that means they've now got a minority of people who are Christian. Now, Britain is officially a Christian nation, a Christian kingdom. Constitutionally, in accordance with the uh, coronation oath, in accordance with the laws of England, and uh, the fact that the Book of Common Prayer is accepted by Parliament as the national liturgy. So Britain is officially a Christian country, but it is not practically. Bear in mind they now have a Muslim uh, mayor of London, they have a Muslim first minister of Scotland, they've got a Hindu prime minister of Great Britain, of England. So um, it would seem, and most of the country seems awfully secular. And as for the government, you know, what can you say about the um, whole government of England? They are uh, pretty disastrous. They've legalised abortion, pornography, criminalizing people for preaching gospel. People have been arrested for preaching open air and for saying things that just the Bible says. And a woman got arrested in England a while ago for praying silently on the other side of the street for an abortion clinic. And you wonder what is going on. It's like the insane lunatics and criminals are running the asylum. So, yes, I think Charles probably does epitomize the spirit of the age, but we do pray he'll rise above this and that he may take his duty and take of the coronation oaths very seriously. So that is a prayer that out of this will come something, something more than just impressive ceremony. And how are we as South African Christians to understand and respond to such events? Well, I think as, as people are focusing on the coronation, and I remember how people were absolutely enamored with Queen um, Elizabeth's funeral last year, and uh, four billion people worldwide watched the funeral. Uh, that's more people in watch Olympic openings and soccer and rugby combined. So uh, the world's never known such uh, media attention. I'd imagine a coronation will be something similar to that. And so as people put a lot of attention to coronation, we should use these opportunities to direct people's thoughts to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who is coming again. He will judge the living and dead. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a far greater king and there's a far greater kingdom and a far greater coronation ceremony coming than what our news media are focused on at this moment. I think those are the sort of things we could be pointing out in our social media posts and in our personal conversations. Yeah, to help the listeners um, begin those conversations, can you tell us more about the greater kingdom? Yes. So it may surprise people to hear that the word church occurs only three times in the Gospels. Yet the terms kingdom and kingdom of God occur over 120 times in the Gospels. The overwhelming emphasis of the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ was the kingdom message. Mark 1, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore, and believe the gospel. So there's no doubt the uh, Lord Jesus Christ preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. But today it's often the gospel of salvation that's preached. Now, the gospel of salvation is part of the gospel of the kingdom, but of course it's only a small part. The gospel of the kingdom is much bigger, broader, and wider, and higher. So the gospel of salvation, as preached in all too many churches and through most of our mass media, Christian media, is mostly about me. And I, I can get saved and blessed and healed and prospered and enriched and improved and saved from the negative consequence of my bad choices and how I can ultimately end up in heaven. And the way the gospel is preached in all too many churches today is something of a therapeutic self-help message where the emphasis is on me. And God plays a supporting role in how I can fulfill my dreams and attain my desires. 
That's a bit of a um, twisted version of what it should be. The gospel of the kingdom of God is about the king of kings and the lord of lords, his crown, his coming, his cross, his great commission, his plans, his purposes for the nations, and what we can do to be faithful subjects, servants, and soldiers of the eternal kingdom. And so you can see it's a good time for us to point out the difference between the gospel of salvation and the gospel of the kingdom. Yeah, the uh, gospel of salvation sounds sort of new age, sort of makes me think of King Charles III. Um, it's become more existential, my personal experience, and me, myself, and I. But our Lord Jesus personified the kingdom he proclaimed. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the living embodiment of everything he spoke about. The person and the proclamation of the king are inseparable. His life and his lips are always in unity. His counsels must determine our conduct. His person and his proclamations are as seamless as the robe he wore. The words he declared were confirmed by his deeds. He brought sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute, cleansing to leopards. He made the cripple to walk, and he raised the dead to life. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you, he said. Now, the kingdom does not make the king. The king makes the king kingdom. That's true. And... Uh, this is so important for us to recognize. Jesus is the only one who is born king. Sometimes you have a person born a prince or princess, but nobody is born a king except Jesus. He was born king, and he was acclaimed king by God the Father. He affirmed his kingship even before the Roman emperor, but his kingdom is not of this world. He said to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, or will they say, see here or see there. Indeed, the kingdom of God is within and amongst you. And so Jesus the king of kings, he is, his kingdom is where he is. And whether people submit to and serving him, that is where the kingdom of God is. Yeah, I know we hope that the kingdom of God is not a mystery to King Charles III, but in the Bible it says that the kingdom of God is a mystery to many. Yes, Jesus said to his disciples, to you has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a mystery. And Jesus described in his parables the kingdom, most of his parables about the kingdom. Um, many of his... Um, Parables are about the principles and the growth of the kingdom and then about the consummation of the kingdom, how the personal experience of the subjects of the kingdom. And Jesus described in Mark 4 that the kingdom of God is as a man scattering seed on the ground, gospel seed. And as the seed sprouts and grows, he doesn't know how. It's like a mustard seed, which when it's sown is smaller than all the seeds on earth, but when it grows up, it becomes greater than all the herbs and shoots out large branches. So there's a mystery, but the kingdom of God is the word of God being sown, and the gospel is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. And some falls on hard ground, rocky ground, some thorny ground, others in good soil and produces 60, 100-fold. And so our Lord Jesus says, For such is the kingdom of God. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So you need humility and faith to enter the kingdom of God. But it's a miraculous work. And uh, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. With men, this is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. So when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're talking about something miraculous, mysterious, and it requires humility and faith to enter it. What is the relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's pretty much the same thing, I think. Uh, very much um, it depends on who he's talking to, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. I think because amongst the Jews... The term, you weren't meant to use the name God that much, so speaking of the kingdom of heaven, was just a, 
uh, a way, a euphemistic way to avoid using the name of God and being in danger of taking God's name in vain. But the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is effectively the same thing. And our Lord Jesus said, we must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto us. And of course, remember, for the kingdom of God to come, the kingdom of Satan must be destroyed. The kingdom of God will destroy all the enemies of God. And there's visions like the vision of Daniel, how all the empires of the king of this world were demonstrate the head of gold, the chest of silver, the stomach of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet of iron clay. And a stone came representing the kingdom of God, and it struck the statue, and the statue crumbled to dust, and the dust was blown away. And the stone grew to be a mountain that filled the whole earth. And this is a description of the victory of the kingdom of God over every other kingdom. Any kingdom or government that is in opposition to God will inevitably fail and will be destroyed and will be replaced, as we've seen with the Roman Empire and the Soviet Union, for example. What is required of the subjects of the kingdom of God? Oh, the subjects of the kingdom are expected to obey and uh, we willing to suffer for Christ. Um, we must be worthy of the kingdom of God. It's absolutely vital that, that we obey God, that we follow him, that we are centered on pleasing him first and foremost. Be counted worthy of the kingdom of God by being willing to suffer for him. We must pass through much tribulation to enter the kingdom of God, we told Acts 14 verse 22. And we read how the kingdom of the world is waging war against the kingdom of God. Babylon, the beast, the harlot, wage war against the kingdom of God. And you can see Babylon with all of its immorality and its slanders and its blasphemies. It's waging war against the children of God and seeking to kill them. And we see people dying for their faith even today in this world and being persecuted in different ways. But the ultimate victory of the kingdom of Christ is inevitable. Dr. Hammond, what, first of all, what, what would be the fruit of the kingdom of God just amongst ordinary citizens, but also, how would what would you like to see as the fruit of a, a, a regenerate King Charles III? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The kingdom of God is seen where men and women submit to the Lord Jesus Christ as king. And you can see this in the excellence in art and architecture and music in the kingdom of God. The great cathedrals proclaim the kingdom of God. Great musical compositions like Handel's Messiah proclaim the kingdom of God. Great works of art do. And just think, for example, when King George II attended the premiere of the Hallelujah Chorus of the Handel's Messiah, he stood during the Hallelujah Chorus. And he initiated a tradition that endures to this day, even to the ends of the earth in Cape Town, at the southernmost tip of Africa. Every time Handel's Messiah is performed, we all stand to our feet at attention for the duration of the chorus. King George II declared, it is impossible to remain stand seated for the anthem of the King of Kings. In fact, when Queen Victoria was very old, attending a performance of Handel's Messiah. She was informed by the organizers, in view of your great age, please, Your Majesty, remain seated and everyone else will stand for the duration of the course. When the Hallelujah Chorus began, Queen Victoria, Empress of the greatest empire the world had ever known, stood and bowed with tears in her eyes and her lips trembling and her body shaking. And when, her, when she asked her dean, Dean Farrow of Westminster Abbey, do you think Jesus is coming back in our lifetime? She said, because nothing would give me more joy than to pass on the crown of Great Britain and India to him with my own hands. She recognized it was her duty and destiny to rule and reign his kingdom, faithful to the scriptures and to the laws of God, in order to hand over the crown and the scepter to the true king, the king of kings and lords of lords, in whose name this trust is held for a short time. And we are just stewards. 
And uh, I think that's a wonderful principle. When an African prince visited Queen Victoria, he asked, what is the secret of Britain's greatness? Well, at that time, Britain was the greatest power worldwide, economically, militarily, politically. She handed him a Bible and says, the Bible is the source of England's greatness, which, of course, the secret is to why England is no longer great. They've abandoned the Bible. But if they would return to the Bible, they would become great again. Um, Dr. Hammond, where can one learn more about the coronation in the light of the kingdom of God? I've done a article, a Bible study on the kingdom of God. And if you go on to www.livingstonfellowship.co.na, livingstonfellowship.co.na, you will see the article, The Kingdom of God, and links to audio and video on it. And uh, I trust you'll find it useful, including details about the actual coronation oath, which I trust the uh, new king will make, because Queen Elizabeth uh, had to respond to this coronation oath. Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God with true profession of the gospel? Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the United Kingdom, a Protestant Reformed religion established by law? Will you maintain and preserve the settlements of the Church of England and the doctrine, worship, discipline, and government thereof, as by law established in England? To this the Queen responded, all this I promise to do. And the Archbishop asked, will you, to your power, cause law and justice and mercy to be executed in all your judgments? And the Queen responded, I will. And then she rose took an oath before the high altar with a hand on the Bible, kissed the Bible, signed the oath. And it's so important that we understand that there is a greater kingdom, there is a greater king, and there's a far greater coronation coming than what they're reporting on for the 6th of May. Dr. Hammond, thank you very much for providing this fascinating insight into the upcoming uh, coronation. You've taken what is what would normally be seen from a tabloid perspective um, into a, a profound light, you've shown us the serious um, s seriousness of the ceremony and the duty that King Charles will be expected to fulfill. In closing, I'd like to read from Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Please join us next week at the same time, 104 FM on Radio Tigerberg, for the next program of Salt and Light. God bless and good night.